Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Well, we're like I said, we're going to dive into and continue this study on the kingdom and what is it all about in the word of God. And before we open up the Bible, we should always go about it with prayer. So let's do that and we'll, and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. And God, we pray, 1 John 2.27, God, that you would just teach us everything out of your word this morning. We love you. God, we are tackling deep, deep subjects in your Bible, in your word, God. And we pray that, Father, you would teach us that, Lord, it would not be by our own understanding, but by your understanding that you impart on us by the Holy Spirit, that we would edify and grow and be strengthened and to build our faith in these days ahead, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 All right, so last week we started a, a deep dive study on the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And we did, we did most of the study last week was on kind of laying the foundation of what is the, the Bible, the kingdom all about. From the very beginning, if you remember, the first quote in the Bible is an attack on God's throne. And then from there, it's a battle for the kingdom the whole time. But, you know, just some challenge questions. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in the Gospels, are they the same or are they different? And what I want to do is just as a reminder is for us to all keep really four main points. I listed three here. There's going to be a fourth here in a second. But keep these three main points in mind as we dive into deep subjects like this in the Bible. Number one, Acts 17.11 that we all need to be like Bereans, that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. In that verse, the most difficult part may actually be to receive it with all readiness of mind because getting the mind ready is a positional statement of a readiness of mind in terms of you've been washing with the water of the word, you are overflowing with the Holy Spirit, your mind is ready to receive things from God's word. And then once you receive it, don't just take it because, you know, Matt's up here saying it, take it because you went home and you studied the word of God and you find it to be true in the entire counsel of God's word, not just, we're going to cover a lot of verses today, But you've got to search these things out in the entire word of God, not just in a a 45-minute message. So it's a a life position. Think about it like that. The second item, 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So when you study the word of God, you are a workman in God's kingdom and you're not ashamed, right? When he calls us home, you will show up at the rapture unashamed. And it, goes, it ties in immediately to the, the mission statement God wrote for this church to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return, a bride that is not ashamed of standing for Jesus despite what the world would say, not compromising on his word. But to show yourself approved, you've got to rightly divide the word of God. And so when you keep that in mind, 2 Timothy 2.15, there are divisions in God's word. God's word is, is sharper than any two-edged sword, divine asunder the soul and the spirit. God's word is divisive. God's word divides out things of the flesh and the things of the spirit. So it, it can divide out these lessons and these messages. Okay, three times in God's word, he says, don't add to or take away from his word. And he he means exactly what he says. And as a reminder, we've, we've talked about this a lot, but remember Eve fell by adding to God's word. 
God said, don't eat of the tree, and she told the Nakash or the shining one, that serpent of old, that he said, don't eat of it or touch it. And that's not what God said. God said, don't eat of it. So she added to God's word, and then we all fell as a result. And that three times God says, don't add to or take away from my word. That's Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 12.32, and Revelation 22.18 and 19. Okay, this verse that we launched off on Hebrews 12.28, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. And this was kind of the verse that we launched into this deep dive study as we closed Hebrews 12 about a kingdom, a kingdom which cannot be moved. Now, remember, as I mentioned, the first quote chronologically in the Bible, it's an attack on God's throne. It's from Isaiah chapter 14, and and it's God quoting Satan, but verses 12 through 14 specifically. And in those quotes, in those verses, remember Satan says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. It was an attack from Satan on God's throne. And that all happened in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And if you're not familiar with that, go back and listen to Let There Be War Part 1 from last summer. We covered that in depth a lot. But something to do with the kingdom shows up almost 3,700 times in the Bible. Remember if you look up king, kings, prince, princes, kingdom, or kingdoms, just those six words up over almost 3,700 times in the Bible. The Bible is a kingdom book from beginning to end. And you and I have a kingdom that we are going to receive at the end of this. And remember Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, etc. They were all kings. All of them were kings. Moses in Deuteronomy 33 is called a king. And today we in the church, although we don't we, we have a hard time, I think, really affiliating ourselves with this, but we in the church are kings and priests today. And that's in 1 Peter 2.9, we are called a royal priesthood, royalty. In Revelation 4 and 5, the 24 elders sitting around God's throne declare by their own statement, he has made us by his blood kings and priests. And the 24 elders we rep- in, the, in Revelation 4 and 5 It's the only place they show up in the entire Bible. They represent the church. There's actually three or four different visions of the throne room in the word of God. Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then Revelation. All of them have a lot in common. Revelation's the only one where the 24 elders show up because the church was hidden in the Old Testament, but then it's revealed in the New Testament, and we are there. That's us. So in Proverbs 25.2, Here's another verse. This is the fourth verse to keep in mind as we dive into this today. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. See, you and I as kings and priests, we have the honor of searching things out in God's word like we're going to cover today and to dive deep into it. And God buries these little treasures all over the scripture to encourage us to take the time to get to know him and to search it out. You know, if it was so plain that you could just read it and get it all in one sitting and just be done with it, what kind of relationship would you have with him? You know, not, not a very deep one. You would just keep moving on. But God's word is living and active, and it's always, always teaching and moving. And so every time you read it, you're going to get something new out of it. So remember, the kingdom of Israel starts to fall apart under David, or after David, I should say. And remember, God promised David that his offspring would have a kingdom forever. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's talking about David's offspring, forever. And that's exactly what the Lord prophesies in Daniel, just as, we're not going to read all of these, I just put in a few slides from last week, just to remind you guys, but Remember in Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and the statue, the head of gold, the chest of silver, the belly of brass, the legs of iron, and then feet of iron and clay. And they represented the five world powers, five Gentile kingdoms that would rule the world from Nebuchadnezzar until the Antichrist. And every one of those was a literal physical kingdom from Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the final phase, the Antichrist kingdom, which was the feet with the ten toes. 
Because in the Antichrist kingdom, the ten kings set it up. The Antichrist rises out of them, puts three of them down, and the other seven that remain consolidate their power to him. Okay, so just at the very bottom here, Daniel 2, verse 44, and in the days of these kings, speaking of the final kingdom, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. He means that, never, never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. In other words, it won't pass on from Jesus to someone else. This is a kingdom that will be eternal forever on the earth that Jesus is the head of. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Remember Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar saw a, a stone cut without hands that came and smashed the feet of that statue, and that mountain became a kingdom that filled the entire earth. So the kingdom that God is going to set up on the earth, it's real, it's physical, and it's an earthly kingdom that Jesus is the head of. And God compares this coming kingdom to those in the dream from Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the Antichrist or Beast Kingdom. Now, if you just think about it logically, did Rome rule the world? You know, yes, Rome was a physical kingdom that ruled the earth. Jesus will have a physical kingdom that will rule the earth. And a lot of that, a lot of that is not taught in most of the body of Christ today. And you miss a lot of prophecy in the Bible when you ignore that the Messianic kingdom is prophesied from beginning to end all throughout scripture. It's not just in these few verses we're going to cover. Again, remember, it's, it's eight to one. There's eight verses in the Bible about Jesus' second coming for every verse about his first. It's, the Bible is, is the majority of it speaks of this time that you and I are heading into. Okay, so in the Gospels, talking about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, in the Gospels, a lot of people like to read the Gospels as they're all kind of synonymous. You know, they're, they're different writers, but they're the kind of the same events, and if you read one, you've read them all, right? Uh, I take the view that that's not the case, that the Gospels are all written by a different angle, a different perspective, with a different purpose, and every one of them is something different for you and I to glean. Otherwise, God would not have given us four of them. That's my view. Um, I think God's word is very specific. I think that he gave us every single word and guarded it for us today so that we would have exactly what he wants us to have today. There's nothing trivial in God's word. So when you look at the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every one of them is different. Jesus is presented different in each one of them. In Matthew, he's presented as the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In Mark, he's presented as a suffering servant. In Luke, he's presented as the son of man. In John, he's presented as the son of God. The genealogy in Matthew starts with the first Jew, because Matthew is written to Jews mainly. And so it starts with Abraham, the legal line of the Jewish king. In Mark, there's no genealogy because he's a servant, and servants often didn't care about their genealogies. And so God removes a genealogy from Mark. In Luke, as he's presented as the son of man, the first genealogy, the first person that starts with is Adam, the first man. So it's the bloodline of Jesus, not the royal legal line like in Matthew. In John, there's a genealogy, but it's about the pre-existing one. Remember how John starts out? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. His genealogy is before earth and time itself. The focus of Jesus in Matthew is what he said, in Mark, what he did, Luke, how he felt, and John, who he was. Matthew's written to the Jews, Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Greeks, John to the church, and all four of them for us today. Okay, the first miracle in Matthew was a leper was healed. It's a very Jewish thing. Leprosy, if you remember, the Jews were so concerned about leprosy that's why the first miracle in, in Matthew is a leper being healed. It represented sin. So God dealing with sin. In Mark, the first miracle is a demon exercised. In Luke, it's also a demon exercised. In John, 
which is mainly focused on the church, the first miracle is water to wine. Now, I think that's fascinating because we have a cup of wine to drink with Jesus that he didn't drink at the Passover. Remember his last supper? There's four Passover cups, and he drinks three of them and stops and says, I won't partake of this fourth one until we, you and I, are with him in the kingdom. And so his first miracle is at a wedding, which you and I are invited to a wedding, turning water to wine. I think that's fascinating. Matthew ends with the resurrection, a very Jewish Jewish topic. Mark ends with the ascension. Luke ends with the promise of the spirit. And John ends with the promise of his return because we're with him in Revelation 19 when he returns. Luke and John, the way they end, sets up the sequel that both of them wrote. The book of Acts for Luke, the promise of the spirit, the outpouring of the spirit. John, Revelation, the promise of his return. Uh, The campsite, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you remember in Numbers when the tabernacle would go and, and be set up and Israel would camp around the tabernacle, it was east, west, south, and north. Well, east was the lead tribe was Judah, and the ensign was a lion. And that's how Jesus is presented, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The west side was Ephraim, and the ensign was an ox. And he's presented as a servant, a, a beast of burden, so to speak, in Mark. On the south side was Reuben, and their ensign was a man. That's Luke, presented as a man. The north side was Dan, and their ensign was an eagle. And John, the, the pre-existing one that soars above all. So these gospels, they're all, they're all different and they all have a different perspective for us, right? They all have something different for us to glean from it. So there's two different kingdoms preached in all four of them. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And both, as I mentioned last week, in Hebrew and German, the words of and from are the same. So when you say the kingdom of heaven... Again, I personally like to think of it as the kingdom from heaven because Jesus comes to set it up. The kingdom of heaven is used 32 times exclusively in the book of Matthew. And again, remember, Matthew's written to the Jews. It presents Jesus as the line of the tribe of Judah. And Matthew 24 contains instructions on what to do during the tribulation. Okay, those instructions are not in any of the other gospels. It's in Matthew 24, written to the Jewish people of Israel that during the tribulation, here's what you need to do. You need to go down. uh, When you see the abomination of desolation, don't go into your home, run, flee to the mountains, take shelter. I will nourish you there. You know, God's giving them instructions on how to survive during that time. So you can even see in that, it's a focus in that regard. Okay, remember last week we covered these verses, but in Matthew, Jesus says, They would have ushered in the kingdom had Israel received him. Now, if you're sensitive to this throughout throughout Matthew, when Jesus is there, he's preaching and John the Baptist is preaching about the kingdom of heaven early on until Jesus is rejected. And then it all kind of shifts away a little bit. He starts to speak in parables. He starts to speak of mysteries of the kingdom But in Matthew 11, verses 12 through 14, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elijah, or Elias, but Elijah, which was for to come. Now, you can't, it's hard to imagine God's throne and his kingdom and and where he sits being taken by violence. You know, the violence take it by force. I don't think anyone's going to step into God's throne room and tell God, hey, this is my throne now, get off. You're, you're, you're done here, I'm gonna sit here. That's not going to happen. What he's talking about is the opportunity to usher in the kingdom, the messianic reign of Christ on the earth was there and being offered to the Jews but they rejected it, and it was paused. It was taken away. And he's referencing, if you would have accepted me, it would not have been John the Baptist. I would have sent Elijah instead. And that's a, it's from a prophecy in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so today, every, 
Jewish family that's an Orthodox Jewish family that celebrates Passover and different things, they actually leave an empty chair at their table thinking Elijah will show up at any moment. And they're listening for a knock on the door, uh, and they, they, sometimes they'll do games with it and, and hide something and knock, and the children try to find something and hoping it's Elijah. But he, Elijah will come back. My guess is he's one of the two witnesses in Revelation. I think he does come back. He'll fulfill Malachi 4, of course, because God says, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, if Israel had accepted him, they would have been ushering in the kingdom. But instead, they rejected him. He went to the cross, and the kingdom's taken from Israel and promised to us and a lot of other people that we will have a stature in it. Israel's going to have a kingdom on the earth. We get a kingdom in heaven, the new Jerusalem. Okay. John the Baptist opens Matthew 3 with this statement, Matthew 3, verse 2, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And from that time, in Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, early in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven was at hand. They were ready. Jesus was ready to just usher it in and start this thing right then, but they rejected him. And after Jesus is resurrected, he only discusses the kingdom of God from that point on. And what I want us to, we're going to dive into the parable of the wedding the wedding here uh, next. And what I want us to all realize is that you and I have a wedding invitation standing. We, you and I have an opportunity to go to a wedding with our Messiah to be a part of the bride. And I, and it's, I think we'll spend an eternity recognizing and trying to learn how unique that is for us. It was something that was offered to the, to the Jews. They rejected it. And thus, it was open to all of us. And that's what this parable is all about. So it's in Matthew 22. We're going to dive into this. Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. There's a lot of parables about the kingdom of heaven and the outer darkness. And what is that all about? And so we're going to, and they're all in Matthew, actually. So we're going to look at, what I want to do is study this one and then look at a couple of other places just quickly here. But in Matthew 22, verse 1, Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. And again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, behold, I've prepared my dinner My oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Okay, he did that. God sent forth his servants to declare all of these things to the Jews. And as we go through this parable, what I want you to realize is that the parable of the wedding, it's a chronological listing of events that God is going through. He sent forth and declared all of these things to the Jews by his servants, the prophets. In Amos 3, verse 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Okay, there's, there is nothing that God does that he does not tell his prophets. Now, what I want us all to also realize is that those people, the servants, the prophets, they're God's servants. They're not ours. And what they messed up, the Jews rejected them constantly. They always went to Israel. They always got railed against. They always were, were ostracized, stoned, murdered, killed. I mean, Isaiah was cut in half for the things he said. And we, we looked at that in Hebrews. Uh, there's a hint of that in Hebrews 11. But a lot of them too, they, they just thought they were false prophets. They thought they had no idea what they were saying. Isaiah said a virgin's gonna give birth. And he's going, to have a, he, he's going to be the son of God. That never happened in his day. Isaiah declared that, and it was hundreds and hundreds of years later. And they all thought this guy was crazy and just killed him for it. But he was speaking the word of God. Daniel prophesied that the Messiah would show up 400 and put a timeline on it. Put a timeline on it of uh, 483 years to the day, and he did. 
None of them saw that, but they thought he was crazy. Well, they, this was their history forever. They thought these prophets had no idea what they were talking about. And so God sends out his servants, tells them, hey, get ready. The wedding is going to be prepared, and I want to invite you to it. And all the Jews do, and all the nation of Israel, all they do is stone them and kill them and reject them. And that went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. So what was Israel's response to God's word and his prophets? Well, Jesus declares it in Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Now, when Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's using, uh, in a figure of speech, it's called a synecdoche. It means uh, the specific to mean the general. So he's meaning all of Israel. It's like when you say, uh, the great example is, man, nice wheels. Well, you're meaning the car, not just the wheels, right? So it's kind of that same, same thing. They rejected, they rejected his son and the wedding invitation and the kingdom. They rejected all of it. Okay, so going back to the, to the parable here, starting in verse 5. But they made light of it and went their ways. They made light of killing God's prophets. They made light of rejecting God's word. They made light of, okay, here's a message from the king of the universe saying, hey, I want to set up a kingdom and I'm inviting you to the wedding to be my bride. And all they did was make light of it. All they did was reject it and say, I don't want any part of it. I want nothing to do with what you're offering. I'm going the other way. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Now it's interesting what ensnared them to reject this offer. The world, work, uh, busyness, right? Things of the world they rejected God for. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. And they did, they killed him. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. So God was angry, right? And that's exactly what happened after they killed Jesus and killed all the prophets. In 70 AD, God destroyed all of Jerusalem with the Roman legions, wiped out the temple, ransacked the city, Israel is dispersed for almost 2,000 years until they are regathered on May 14th of 1948. In verse 8 here, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. They rejected it. They're no longer worthy to be here. Go ye therefore into the highway, and as many as ye shall find, bid them to the marriage. Bid to the marriage. Now I find that word interesting. The highways... What is our way in the book of Acts called? It's the way, right? <laughs> the way. It's the high way. Go out there into the way. Invite everyone you can find for what we know to be almost 2,000 years to the wedding. Form this church. Get people filled with the Holy Spirit and prepare them for the wedding. Because all of the Israelites from Abraham all the way up until they killed Jesus rejected it, rejected it, rejected it rejected it. Okay, so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Notice the wedding had guests. So the wedding has guests. Uh, there are those that are a part of the bride. There are those that get to attend the wedding as guests, or one might call them friends of the bridegroom. Okay, and there's a verse that John uses here in a minute we'll look at. Okay, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had, on, had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. Okay, again, this is a chronological listing of events. The wedding in the kingdom was offered to the Jews. They rejected it and rebelled against God, killing his servants. 
the wedding is open to everyone out in the highways, the way from the book of Acts. The church will have been raptured to meet Jesus in the air. He will take the church to the wedding hall as the bride of Christ. And there's someone in heaven that tries to sneak into the wedding, but he's not allowed. And this is fascinating. So this person is saved. He's, God calls him friend in Matthew 22, verse 12. And he saith unto him, friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. There's someone in heaven that God calls friend that tries to sneak into the wedding. And God only uses that term of those that are saved. He doesn't call his enemies friend. This is a friend. This is someone that's, that is a friend of God that is saved, but does not have the proper attire to be attending the wedding. So the wedding garment, what is it all about? It's, it's, a, it's not a robe of salvation. This is a privilege that if you are submitted to Christ and giving your life to him in all that you do, the wedding garment is a, is a privilege. It's a reward for faithful service. Look at Revelation 19, verse 7. Starting in verse 7, I should say. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife had made him herself ready. So the bride, if you remember in the Jewish wedding, the model of it is the entire model the church follows. So what happens is, a father has a, has a son, there's a bride, and, or the father has a daughter, or the father has a son, they arrange a marriage. Well, the father of the, of the son sets the purchase price in the, for the bride. In this case, it was none other than God himself was the purchase price. There's a, there's a covenant made, an exchange, and the bridegroom then goes to his father's house and builds a room addition. And that room addition can be as big or vast or extravagant as you can imagine. And when it's prepared, the father tells the son, okay, it's ready, go get your bride. And in the meantime, the bride has no idea when the bridegroom will show up. The bride is to always be arrayed in a wedding garment, ready at any moment for the bridegroom to come through the city with the sound of a trumpet and a host with him, and the bride then has to be ready to get up quickly and go out to meet the bridegroom. And when they, get, when they meet, the servants of the bridegroom have this platform that the bride sits on and they lift her up into the air. And then they go off to a secret location for a wedding that lasts seven days. And after those seven days, they come out and there's a very public ceremony of celebration it's called the wedding feast, different than the wedding ceremony. And that's, that's what we're about to divide here. You've got to rightly divide God's word, but there's a wedding feast then that's open to more people and they attend. But the bride is to always have herself ready. That's the key. And you and I, as, a, as the church, if we want to be the bride of Christ, we have to always have ourselves ready because we have no idea when God is going to come and say to the son, okay, go get them. The room edition from John 14 is finished. Go get them, blow the trumpet, meet them in the air where the bride is lifted up. We go off to this wedding ceremony that the Jews rejected. And then we're gonna come back with Jesus, set up the kingdom and have the marriage feast on the earth. That's the, that's the pattern, okay? So we're, we're to always have ourselves ready in verse eight here. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Okay, what is this fine linen that the, that the bride wears? The fine linen is the righteousness of saints. The righteousness of saints. It's not, your right, it's, it's not the righteousness you put on of Christ to get saved. It's how faithful were you once you were saved. That's the difference. The wedding garments are your righteous acts. It has nothing to do with your salvation, but rather what you did with your salvation. So in verse nine, and he saith unto me, right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper 
of the lamb, not the marriage, but the marriage supper. The supper's on the earth, the marriage is in heaven. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. So in verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him and he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So don't ever be afraid to study prophecy in the Bible. It's the testimony of Jesus. Okay, this friend had no good acts or righteousness, but he was in heaven and saved. Remember back to the parable in Matthew 22. Thus he was not given the privilege to be a part of the bride or a guest at the wedding, but he wanted to be. Okay, in Revelation 16, verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth, this is Jesus speaking, and keepeth his garments, the wedding garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So you lose your garments by acts of sin and refusing God's refining power in your life. And that's, that's something that is frankly not really stressed enough today is that, okay, great, you're saved. Now, what are you doing with it? It's, it's not just get saved and then, okay, go on about your life till you die. You've got to do something with this. God saved you and I for a reason and for a purpose, and he has a purpose for our lives. Breaking fellowship with God lest you walk naked. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 3, remember the Bema Seat of Christ, where every believer stands, 1 Corinthians 3.15, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. You can be saved and spend your entire life doing nothing for God, and everything you did was in the flesh, and you're going to get before the Lord, and all of your work is burned up by the refining fire of Jesus Christ. And you're going to stand there, and you're going to be sorrowful and remorseful because you didn't take advantage of the opportunity to serve the king while you had time but you're still saved, yet so is by fire. It's just you may not be invited to, to the wedding. Okay, Matthew 22, verse 13, remember, then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, binding the hands and feet, this is a Jewish idiom from their legal system. Uh, binding the hands and feet, is, it means to be restricted. This individual in the kingdom will be restricted. He will not have access to certain things. He'll not be able to participate in certain activities or celebrations. In this case, to be a part of the wedding. He won't even be a guest at the wedding. The outer darkness, this is also a Jewish idiom, the outer darkness only shows up three times in the entire Bible, that phrase, in our English. It never refers to hell. It only shows up three times in the book of Matthew. What it means is, in the ancient world, there were no lamps outside on the streets. So the Jews in the ancient world and how they live, remember that we're reading a book written to a Jewish people at a certain time, but for us today, the, the streets were dark at night. So you had lamps inside your home, but then there were these gates to get inside your house or inside maybe your courtyard outside your home. The outer darkness referred to the area of less light or the, the, place, the place of less light or the darkness outside. So it was, it's what God is saying here is you will be, for this servant that was unprofitable, he will be bound and restricted to the area outside in the millennium of less light. And remember Jesus, when he sets up the kingdom, he, there is no more, there's not light there. Jesus is the light of the world. But as you get further and further and further outside of the temple proper in the millennium from Ezekiel, it gets darker and darker and darker. It's, it's an area of less light. It has to do with positional relationship. And so it's a restriction put on this individual. God's saying to restrict him and put him in the darkness outside. And the weeping and gnashing of teeth is also a Jewish idiom for deep regret. That was something they used, kind of like put on sackcloth and ashes in the Old Testament when they would mourn. It was weeping. They were gnashing their teeth. They were regretful. There will be deep regret 
for wasting one's life and not using your gifts and talents after becoming saved. That's the key here for all of us in these parables. For many are called, but few are chosen for rewards. Those that choose to serve him will not be restricted. And this phrase, remember, like I just said, outer darkness, it only shows up three times all in the book of Matthew in related to this kingdom of heaven. It's Matthew 8, verse 11. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's one spot it shows up. Uh, Many will come to sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God as well. When you read this in Luke 13, 28 and 29, I've always found this fascinating because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have an inheritance waiting for them in the millennium when they're resurrected on the earth to the kingdom, but they're going to be in attendance, sounds like, as friends at the wedding. And many will come to sit with them in the kingdom of God. In Luke 13, 28 and 29, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. One of these, uh, one of the friends, right, that was there that didn't have on the proper attire. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. So, we'll get to see them at the wedding. Maybe they're, called, they're considered friends of the bridegroom. In John 3, verse 29, John is referring to, John the Baptist is referring to himself here. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. I hope that's you and I in this room. I hope that you are saved and in Christ and living for him today so that you are part of the bride and you have the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, with, which standeth and heareth him, he's calling, John the Baptist is referring to himself here, the friend of the bridegroom. He's not a part of the bride. Remember the Old Testament, the law and the prophets were until John. The church has this unique opportunity. He rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy thereof, therefore, is fulfilled. See, John's joy was overfilled because he's a friend of the bridegroom hearing him speak on the earth at that time when he was there. So he'll, he'll be there. Uh, the second place outer darkness is used is in Matthew twenty two thirteen, 13, which we just looked at. The third and final place is Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, 29 and 30. For unto everyone that hath shall be given and he shall have abundance but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. Now, this is, this is God's program of, of rightly distributing and welfare, right? <laughs> For everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. And from him that hath not, even what he has is going to be taken away, and he will have nothing. Uh, sounds very equitable and fair in today's society. And cast ye this unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember the parable of the talents? I didn't put the whole thing in here. But you all remember the guys with the talents. The last one took the one he had and buried it and did nothing with it. He was unprofitable his entire life. And so what little he had, the master comes back and says, Hey, if you would have just even put it in the bank, I could have earned you know, a CD rate or something, uh, but you did nothing with it. So he tells his angels, take what he has, what little, and give it to this guy over here that has a lot. And it's because the simple question is, can God trust you with what you've been given? And if he can trust you, he'll give you more. And what do you do with what God gives you? See, this unprofitable servant buried his talent, but he's still a servant. He's still a servant of God. He just chose not to serve God. He's saved. There's going to be deep regret in the end for this apathetic approach to one's salvation. Okay, remember the kingdom of God is spiritual in nature. We're about finished here. It is where God sits on his throne in heaven and it currently dwells inside of us as believers and as its presence on the earth from Luke 17 verse 20. 
And when he demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, meaning you can't see it. Every eye will see Jesus when he sets up the kingdom on the earth. Every eye will see him, but yet the kingdom of God, it does not come with observation. The kingdom from heaven is going to be an event that shakes the earth and every nation's going to tremble before Jesus. Neither shall they say, lo here, lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is where? It's within you right now. Right now, the Holy Spirit indwells you. If you are saved in this room or listening to this, the Holy Spirit indwells you personally. You are a bearer, an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Do not forsake that and take that lightly. They were looking for, it's interesting, the Pharisees were looking for a kingdom, but they were confused on which one was being offered. They got messed up. They, they were missing the fact that, okay, we've rejected Jesus, but yet we still want him to set up this kingdom. In Romans 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And that's a link to Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit within us is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. You all know the verse. But it's righteousness and peace and joy. It's the same words, joy, peace, righteousness, long-suffering, etc. from Galatians. That's us. You must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. There's nothing that God never says you have to be born again to enter the kingdom from heaven. Because there's going to be people that survive the tribulation, that are born in the tribulation, that survive it, that go into the kingdom of heaven, the millennium, so to speak, on the earth to repopulate the earth. And we studied that in Jeremiah, it's in, it's in Isaiah, it's in Daniel, it's all over the Old Testament. Um, in Jeremiah, it says that if, if a person in the millennium dies before the age of 100, they die as a child. Because somehow longevity is restored. The physics change on the earth when the one that created the laws shows up and sets it up. He changes the very structure of our galaxy at that point. It's going to be amazing. But you have to be born again in the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 2. Then came Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, oh, the same came to Jesus by night. This is Nicodemus, remember, and said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So it's something you can see, but you must be born again in the spirit to get there. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? You know, here, I love everywhere in the Bible when Jesus is walking around, and he uses these phrases to confuse people. And they, they try to use their own understanding and knowledge. And the, all these books and everything they have to try to understand what he's saying. And they, they can't figure it out because they don't have the Holy Spirit yet in them. They could have asked him. And Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual heavenly kingdom that you must be born again to enter into, to have entrance into. And the kingdom of God is removed. Our representation right now, we are representing the kingdom of God right now. And it's removed from the earth at the rapture. Okay, seven times, remember in the book of Acts, after Jesus has ascended, the Christians never preach again the kingdom of heaven. It's always the kingdom of God. And there's the seven references. Acts 1, 3, 8, 12, 14, 22, 19, 8, 20, 25, 28, 23, and 28, 31. And after Jesus was resurrected, the disciples come together with him. And look at what they ask after he was speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God in Acts 1, verse 3. It's in Acts 1, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, Will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to whom? To Israel. It was taken. And they wanted it back. But look what Jesus says. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. 
So notice Jesus does not say it won't happen. He says it's rather it's not for you to know when it will happen. He is going to restore the kingdom and give it to Israel on the earth. It's the millennial reign of Christ. It's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant from Samuel. It's exactly what the angel Gabriel told Mary, that her son would, ha- would sit on the throne of David. And remember last week, we looked at three times in the Old Testament, David will be resurrected to be the prince of Israel in the millennium. That's twice in Ezekiel and once in Jeremiah. So I find that fascinating. They wanted to know, when will the kingdom be established? And he said, hold on, it's not for you to know the time yet. We've got work to do here first. The kingdom from heaven, it's always in 12s, 12 tribes, 12 kingdom parables, 12 kingdom mysteries, 12,000 sealed from each of the 12 tribes, 12 apostles ruling over the 12 tribes in Matthew 19, verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the son of man, that's an earthly, that's a phrase of the ruling Christ on the earth, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's also in Luke 22, verse 30. The New Jerusalem has twelve gates, twelve foundation stones, and it's twelve thousand furlongs cubed. If you remember from our, our Revelation study. You know, it's amazing how the Jews rejected Jesus as king, but Pilate even knew he was. It's amazing. I, I think that Pilate will be in heaven myself. It's just a a guess, but you kind of pick that up when his wife has the dream and and says, have nothing to do with this man. And look what Pilate does here in John 18, starting in verse 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, sayest thou this thing of thyself or did others tell it of thee? Me of it thee of me. In verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. He doesn't say it'll never be from hence. But right now in this moment, as he's standing before Pilate, preparing to go to the cross for you and I, he could have ushered in at any moment legions of angels and slaughtered everyone and just said, forget it. I'm done with your rebellion. You're not going to kill me. You're going to try to kill God. I'm not doing it. I'm wiping you out. But he didn't. Right now, my kingdom's not from hence. There will come a time that his kingdom will be from hence. And he's going to set up a throne in Jerusalem and rule for a thousand years. And then Satan's going to be loosed one last time, lead a rebellion of the nations, and God is going to rain fire from heaven and wipe them out. It's at the end of Revelation. And then we go into the new heaven and the new earth. And notice he says that it's just not right now. But look what Pilate then does. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? He's so confused because he recognizes that this man, there's something different about this man. He's a king. I know in my heart he's a king. But yet here he is. He won't defend himself. He's gone through seven illegal trials between the Romans and the Jews. He's willing to go through with letting them execute himself. And yet I know deep down inside this man is something that nobody else that walks the earth is. He's a king. He's the son of God. And Jesus answered, thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? Remember what Jesus said, I am the truth. And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find no fault at all. In other words, there is nothing wrong with this guy. Why do you want to kill him so bad? 
And if you look closely at the discussion, you'll find a clue that there's something he wrote um, on the cross here. Now, when Jesus on the cross, uh, uh, when Jesus on the cross, Pilate writes this inscription. And look closely. You're going to find this is really interesting. Can you go to the next slide, Aaron? Okay, and Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The King of the Jews in our English. That's how it's translated. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Notice that Pilate could write in three languages. He wrote in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And then said the chief priest to the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. See, they wanted something changed about what Pilate wrote. Now, why? Anytime you and I miss something in the scripture, always watch when the Israelites and the Pharisees and the religious zealots get bent out of shape about something. Because they're bent out of shape because something deeper is going on here. And look what Pilate says. What I have written, I have written. In other words, I don't care what you want me to change. This man is the king. And, and it's remarkable that he wrote it in three languages in a, in a high mountain on Golgotha where every traveler would pass by and see it. Now, when you look at what Pilate wrote, he wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The very bottom of the slide, this is what Pilate wrote in Hebrew. And remember, Hebrew goes right to left. Each letter of the first word, there's four words here. And each letter, if you take each letter of the first four words, it makes an acrostic. It's Y-H-W-H. It's the unpronounceable name of God in the Jewish language. It's be, that's why they were so upset. The Jews are always about codes and messages and acrostics and these hidden things in God's word. The Torah codes, I'm sure all of you have heard about that, where they search these things out. See, because God's handwriting, it is, it is inexhaustible what you can find in God's word. But Pilate wrote a message, and he's intentionally messing with the Jews. This is the king of the Jews, Yodhed Vadhe, and he wrote it on the cross. Their unpronounceable name of God that they wanted nothing to do with, ever to say. And that's why they come to him and say, no, don't write that. Write that he said he was king of the Jews, not that he is king of the Jews. I find that amazing. So at the end of this all, God will not let everything that's going on right now continue forever. The injustice in the earth, when you look around, there's a king coming to set up a kingdom. You and I have the esteemed privilege to be invited to a wedding before that happens. And to get your heart and your, right, and, and your life right with him and to dedicate your life and everything about it to him. To be invited into a wedding hall where you will see people that cannot get in, but they're going to be in heaven with us. It's a privilege, it's an honor that you and I get to have that invitation open to us right now. And the blasphemy and the sin in the world right now, it's gonna reach a pinnacle that God has to move. You think about what he said to Abraham, the, Am the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. After 400 years, your descendants will come again. The sin of the Amorites is not yet full. He was giving them space. It was a volumetric term, a time where he was giving the Amorites space to repent, but they wouldn't. And their sin reached a pinnacle that God had to move. It's the same with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember when he came down to Abram and he said, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah has reached to heaven. It's gotten to a point where I can't let it rest anymore. I can't just ignore it. And when you look around and you, st and you think it's okay to do what this world does today to children, you are shaking and messing with God. You are, you are calling him onto the battlefield because God will not sit back and watch this forever. There were 48 million children killed in the United States in 2021 from abortion. He's not gonna sit and let that blood rest forever. And that's one of the reasons why 
uh, people ignore prophecy so much, they can't imagine the God of the universe intervening in the lives of men in that way. Because frankly, it's been a while. He hasn't moved in that, I mean, he is. You can see him moving in a lot of ways, but people ignore it. Um, And his justice will not rest forever. The wheat and the tares will grow up together. He's going to gather the wheat, us as the church, into the barn, and the tares get thrown into the fiery furnace of his judgment. He's going to call his church home. The Antichrist will rise to power, affirm a covenant with Israel. It's going to trigger the worst seven-year period in human history. And until the heavens are open and one sitting on the white horse comes to make war in righteousness in Revelation 19.11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and sit back idly and let all the sin continue on for a long time. No. (laughs) He doth judge and make war. So act like a king and bring honor to his name. That's, That's the call for all of us. You know, are you doing the things that Christ can reward you with at the Bema seat, or are you not? Commitment, faithfulness, a true witness, dedication, giving of your time, talents, and treasure, all of that. God has something for every single person that is in him. Don't think he doesn't. You have a call on your life that is more unique than the call on anyone else's life because it's unique for what God wants you to do with your life. So what is your call? Don't bury your talent. Use it and let God multiply it. Those who rejected the wedding invitation, remember they were aggressive, they were angry, and they wanted to kill those servants from God. They didn't like the fact. So we all need to be watchful. When you see what's going on, like I said, around the world, uh, when all of a sudden we think it's okay to start mutilating children, to kill them in the Holy of Holies, to... Uh, traffic them all around the world in these grievous acts. Uh, God of, the God of the universe does not sit back idly forever and let that go on. And when you see that more and more come to light, I would encourage all of you, uh, myself included, but all of us, to <clears throat> go to prayer uh, for this time that we all live in right now. It is, it is unique. It's very unique. There's no other time. Uh, Satan always has to have an antichrist waiting because he doesn't know when the church will be taken. So he tries to push it in. He tries to push it in. He tries to push it in. And you've seen this all the way since Nimrod, uh, Hitler, Stalin. You just go down the list of all these dictators around the world that have tried to conquer the earth He's tried to bring it in. Well, this is the first time in, our, in the history of mankind that Satan has done something in reverse. He's put the system in place for a man or someone, something, uh, the Antichrist may not be totally human, but to step in and take over a system. And that's the difference. He didn't bring a person to try to usher in the system. He's bringing the system for someone to step into. And if you're sensitive which is why I'm excited to do prophecy in here and and give you guys the eyes to see this all over the world. If you're sensitive to it, you'll see it every day in the headlines because that system, that beast system is rising up every day. Uh, The onslaught of artificial intelligence, uh, track and trace everywhere that you need something to travel, to buy, sell, trade, to keep a job, anything. You just look at it all when you look at everything that Revelation describes that the world will be like, you can watch prophetically every one of those points being put into place. And when you see that, you've got to be watchful. When you see that, you know that Jesus is going to call us home soon. He has to. There's no other way around it. And maybe it's not in our lifetime. Maybe it's in the lifetime of our children, our grandchildren. You know, who knows? But it's, uh, it's on the horizon, and so we all need to be watchful. So with that said, if you, if you don't know the Lord and you want to have an invita- accept the invitation to the wedding, it starts by getting saved, Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to God but by him and only him. 
So do that. Go before your, go before your, your God on your knees in your room and get on your knees and just say, Lord, I confess to you that Jesus is King. He is Lord and that I am in need of a savior. Forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of my unrighteousness. And let me have a place for all eternity in your kingdom. And you can be saved instantaneously. You are born again in the spirit and you have access. Lord, we come before you and we just thank you for this study. Yeah, we thank you for the deep truths in your word that we can put this together, that God, you can give us understanding of your word. And that Lord, we look to you as the maker the author and the finisher of our faith. And we pray that God, you would give each one of us today a sense of urgency to go out into this world and to live for you and to surrender our lives to you. God, whatever it is, speak to us, God, and let your word not return void. We love you. Be with us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.